So when I was a young man, first getting involved in ministry, um, I used to not only, you know, when I was in college, did a lot of outreach ministry, but a few times I would go to a, a church that was just starting or maybe a church that a friend of mine had became the pastor of and wanted to help them kind of get the word out about the, the new church or the new pastor at a church. And so I would do some neighborhood canvassing for, the, for, the, for that church that I was trying to be helpful to. And one story I have as a young man is going to a church with a new pastor and visiting the neighborhood around there just to let the folks know, hey, check out this church near you uh, and, uh, and, and such. And one particular time I was, I was knocking on doors and you know, kind of canvassing and um, a man answered the door a couple blocks from the church I was visiting for. And he said to me, he said, you know, I just, I'm not going to go to that church. And I said, oh, man, why not? And he said, well, because I know about that church. He says, I heard about the drama going on. I heard about so-and-so doesn't like so-and-so, and so-and-so was, was, was not speaking to this other person. They were upset because of something that happened that I heard about that uh, they're not on talking terms. And there's just some, some, uh, some drama down there, he said. And the people aren't getting along, and I just don't, just don't care to have that in my life. I just don't need that. So I'm not going to that church because I know how they, how they are getting along. Man, I was so sad. I, I couldn't think of anything to say to that guy except for, well, there's a new sheriff in town there. Maybe it'll be better. Just come on, give it a shot, you know. But really, he just was not interested. He was turned off by the reputation the church had near him. He was literally living under the shadow of their steeple and had heard without going into the doors about the relationships, and he was turned off. We're finishing our sermon series soon called Eclipsed. And this sermon series is about how we block the light that we are called to reflect. We are called to be the moon. We saw that in scripture, that Jesus is the light of the world, but like the sun lights our world. When the world's turned backwards, it cannot see the light of the sun. But if the moon's in the right spot, the moon is catching the light of the sun and it's reflecting back in and it's creating light even in the darkness. And so we're supposed to be the moon that when people who can't see God from where they found themselves in life or they've never, been, they've never had a, a good, clear vision of him through uh, exposure, that they would see his love and his light in us reflecting into their world and it would point them to him. But sometimes the moon isn't reflecting the light to the earth. Like sometimes the moon actually gets in the way of the sun and eclipses it. And um, we don't want to be Jesus followers who get between people and their view of God because as they look towards God, they see us who claim to be God's people and they see something more ominous, something less attractive, blocking the view of God's light, God's love, God's good news. We've eclipsed the main message. So we don't want to do that. So we're talking about how we don't want to eclipse it. We've had several conversations so far about how our politics are a problem in the church, uh, national politics, and uh, we talked about, uh, you know, just getting along with each other. We talked about uh, you know, church denominationalism. We talked about conspiracy theories and all sorts of things. And we're going to wrap this up next week. But for today, I want to talk about the direction about our relationship within our church. Now, I told you that story a minute ago. Fortunately, I think the Lighthouse Church, in my time of, of being pastor, has had such tremendous relationships uh, overall. I'm not, who knows if there's ever a little tiff here or there between human beings. I don't know. But we've, we've never had drama that I can think of, not at any noticeable level for sure. Uh, and that's awesome. That means we've gotten along really well. But you hear stories like the one I told all the time of places where the church is so at odds with each other that people around them are like, who needs that? 
We don't want to eclipse our message. So I want to begin by telling you about Jesus' last few hours before he was crucified. He met in an upper room with his disciples. They were gathered for one last meal. It was Passover time. As they gathered for that meal, they began to, um, he, he instituted communion, or we call the Lord's Supper or communion. By the way, we're going to take communion at the end of the service today together, so be ready for that, just for a few minutes. Um, but um, Jesus instituted the communion, and then they, he taught them some important things. He gave them a new commandment. Remember the new commandment? Love each other the way that I have loved you. Love each other the same way. And he said, this is how the entire world is going to know you're my disciples, if you love one another. This is the secret sauce for the world to know, is if you love one another. Then they left the, the meal they left the upper room, and they went towards the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the place where they would pray for a while until the soldiers would come at the, at the uh, betrayal of Judas, and they would arrest Jesus, and eventually, the next day, he would be crucified. And so as they headed to Gethsemane, Jesus is walking with the disciples, and he prays a prayer. And it's pretty awesome because John actually records writes down for us so that we can read it 2,000 years later, John records Jesus' prayer. It's all of John 17. You ought to read it when you go home. It's the, the long prayer. It's the one long recorded prayer that Jesus ever prayed in all of Scripture is John 17. And it's on his way to be arrested and be crucified for our sins. And so you ought to read that. It's pretty important. It's like last words, you know, last, last prayer, Right? And this is what we call, I call it the Lord's Prayer, by the way. I know some of you grew up hearing the Lord's Prayer to be the prayer that says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, yada, yada, yada. That, I believe, is the model prayer that Jesus taught as a model for how to pray. But the Lord's Prayer would be John 17, where the Lord actually prayed on his way to the cross. Read it for yourself sometime. But in that prayer, Jesus prayed. Whatever, he, whatever he's talking about must be important. And we pick up the story in John 17 and verse number 20, partway through his prayer. Here's what he says. I am praying not only for these disciples. In other words, I'm not only praying for these 12 guys that were in the upper room with me and are now walking with me, well, 11 guys. I'm not just praying for these disciples but also I'm praying for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So here's where I ask you to raise your hands, okay? So it's okay to raise your hands if this is true. How many of you today, you heard the message of God, of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. You heard that and you've believed that message and you've received Christ as your Savior. Raise your hand if that's you and you've done that, okay? Isn't that wonderful? That's great. Now, listen, here's the deal. Jesus is talking about you and me right there. He said in his prayer, Father, I'm not just praying for these immediate disciples around me, but I am praying for all of those, that's you and me, who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. He was praying for people in Cedar Lake, Indiana, 2,000 years ago before we gathered today. So aren't you curious? What is it that Jesus was praying about for you? You were on his mind. What was he praying about for us? He explains in verse 21. He says, I pray that they will all be one. And of course, not physically. We're all individuals. We're separate. He's referring, as we'll see, to unity. I pray that they will all be one, 
Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us. Why? Don't miss this now. So that the world will believe you sent me. That's so important. Jesus is praying, Father, help the believers to be unified together so that the world will believe the message. It's the same thing he said in his new commandment. This is how everyone knows, the world's going to know that you're my disciples. They'll know when they see your love for each other. Now he's praying it. He's saying, Father, help them to be one so that the world will believe them. Because that's what's going to sell, the, that's what's going to sell it. No one's going to believe it if they don't have any love for each other. If they don't have any unity together. If they're divided and, and contrary and un, uncaring. No one's going to believe that. So help them to be one so that the world will believe you sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity, such perfect unity, why? That the world will know that you have sent me and that you love them as much as you have loved me. Interesting prayer that Jesus is praying. It's almost like he saw how Christians would behave towards each other in time, and he figured out, hmm, this might be important. And then he says this, Father, I want these whom you have given to me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Isn't that an interesting transition right there? Jesus was about to say, as I'm asking you, Father, to help these believers be one, be unified together, even though they're different from each other, even though they don't always like each other or see the world the same way as each other, help them to be one together. As he prays that, he gives us an example once again. He says, because, Father, I want them to be with me one day. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm about to go to the cross. Think about this. Whenever you sit back and say, I don't know, it's hard to be find unity with people that are different than me because I think they're so weird, you know. By the way, if you think people are weird, I have, to, I have to break it to all of us today real quick here. You are weird to other people. Not me, right? Not me. I'm normal. I'm the, I'm the one normal one. Like, I'm the standard by which everyone else, according to how they fit into my framework, if they don't, they're weird, right? I'm the normal one. But to somebody else who's normal, you're weird. So we're all weird. But, but people are like, man, they're just different than me. They don't do things the way I do them. They don't prioritize what I prioritize. They don't, they're not like me. They irritate me sometimes, whatever. And Jesus is saying, I want them to be one so that the world will believe their message. And then he says, Father, I'm here to die for these people so that they can be with me. Think about this. We're difficult. We're sinners. We've come short of the God. You talk about people who are difficult to you or me. How difficult are we towards God? We've done our own thing. We've been stubborn. We've been selfish. We've gone our own direction. We've marched to our own drum, the beat of our own drum. We have been difficult over and over again. And yet God, who could be offended by our ways, chose to look at, and, and, and could, by the way, God could have taken it personal. Because our offenses, man, it was on, on the chin for him, literally, on the cross. But he said, I will take their wrongs and their disdain for me and their 
they're turning their back on me and they're doing their own thing and they're basically just hurting, offending my sensibilities and dismissing me and not appreciating me and not loving me and sometimes even rejecting me. And I will go to the cross and die for those people so that they can be back in relationship with me even though they're that difficult. And he's praying, saying, Father, I want these difficult people in my life. I want these difficult people with me forever in heaven. I want these difficult people to be united even though they're difficult. And he says that right after saying, God, help these people to love each other even though they find each other to be difficult (laughs) so that the world will believe our message. And it just, it reminds me that if Jesus, listen, if Jesus can love you when you're nothing like him, then you can love other people though they're nothing like you, right? I mean, that's that's reasonable. If Jesus can love people who are nothing like him, then you and I, I can love people, you can love people who are nothing like us. It's possible. And Jesus modeled it for us. And this is the secret sauce to our entire messaging and our entire well, it's, an, it's, 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 the, it's the light that Jesus shown. It's the good news that he brought that we eclipse when we don't do this well. And this is a problem that's always been that way with human beings. It's always been this way. So from the early church, this was a problem. Because, you know, Ten years after Jesus died and rose again, people were starting to believe assemblies and gatherings and churches were being started of Jesus' followers and believers. And already there was problems in their gatherings. Most of the epistles of the New Testament were Paul and Peter and others writing to try and solve those problems between people. And you know, maybe one of the worst churches that Paul had to address for internal problems, anyone want to guess which church, which town that was in? Like the most difficult church that Paul had to deal with? Anybody? Take a stab at it. Corinth. Corinth was a handful. Like, when you want to know how much of a handful the, the, the church in Corinth was? Paul wrote his longest letter he wrote to anybody to the church at Corinth. And that wasn't enough. He wrote another one that was top three longest letters. <laughs> so two of the three longest letters Paul wrote to anybody were both to the church at Corinth. And as far as we can tell by records, he wrote a third one to them that did not make our New Testament canon. He was constantly dealing with this difficult group. And I want you to see a little bit of what he's dealing with within this church who is missing Jesus' prayer and Jesus' new command. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says this to them. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Now, there's a whole thought there that I'm not going to get into at length today because it deserves its own whole Sunday. But that word harmony is, is almost more beautiful than unity because it deals with the idea that when people are singing in harmony, they're singing different notes, but they blend together to create harmony. That they're not the same, they're different, but there's still harmony there. And that's the point that he's making. We can live in harmony with people who are different than us. Anyhow, he goes on to say this in verse number, well, the next part, he says this. He says, let there be no divisions in the church. Here's Paul already dealing with the early first century church saying, guys, live in harmony. Don't have divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united, here it is, united in thought and purpose. There's something bigger that brings us together than the things that make us unique. 
And then he says this in verse 11. He says, for some members of Chloe's household have told me, uh, there's always a Chloe in the church to let, to, to let the kid out of the bag, you know. So she, she uh, Facebook messenger, she, she, she Snapchatted him, you know. He's like, Chloe's fam- house has some people that told me about your quarrels. <laughs> My dear brothers and sisters, I love this because Paul's like, guys, I'm not even in Corinth and I'm hearing about your fights. I'm not even there, okay? He's like, I don't even want to, I was going to write more letters to you from a distance because my goodness, you know? So this is what's going on. In fact, if you read the entire letter of 1 Corinthians, and and someday we're going to study 1 Corinthians as an entirety over a long number of weeks or months. But he's addressing lots of problems like this. People who were not getting along, then they had some bad stuff going on that no one was addressing. Then there were other people who were looking down on those who were worse than them. There was lawsuits between each other. I mean, it was crazy. And Paul addresses all these problems in this letter, but here's what's interesting. This particular problem he brings up again in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 1. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would talk to spiritual people Ouch. That's rough right there. He's like, guys, when I was with you, I couldn't even talk to you like spiritual people. Because you just aren't. It's like, Paul, take the gloves off, buddy. I mean, what do you mean you're not spiritual? We're in church. He says, I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world. This is a big idea. Because I've said this before and we'll say it again this morning. That when we, the Bible talks about being worldly. It's a very mobile term, depending on what kind of church culture you grew up in. I've, I've been in church long enough to see a lot of people, they call all the things that they don't like about culture, like that's worldly. And I've always tried to look past that. You know, it's not, we, we, like, if I don't like your wardrobe, that's worldly. If I don't like what you're saying, your playlist, that's worldly. If I don't like what's in your Netflix queue, that's worldly. But I like to find a more consistent measurement of what worldly means other than our, our whims. And when you study it throughout the scripture, there seems to be two big ideas when Jesus refers to the world. Uh, one is not to love the world, referring to materialism. But the other one is, is referencing to acting like the world, and it almost always deals with how we get along with each other. Every, in, in this context, it deals with how we get along with each other. So I know some of us think people are worldly if they don't, if they don't listen to the kind of music we listen to or do the kind of things we do or dress the way we dress. That has nothing to do with the Bible. In scripture worldliness was always about you're being conformed to this world. Read the context around them. You're being conformed to this world when you don't get along with each other any better than the rest of the world does. That's always the context of Scripture. So Paul says, I had to talk to you as though you didn't belong to Christ. You weren't spiritual. I had to talk to you like you belonged to this world. And he goes on. He's not done yet. He says, or as though you were infants in Christ. Ouch, again. What? Like you're a bunch, you're a bunch of babies, he said. Like, that's not even nice, Paul. But he's, he's kind of, you know, fixing some problems here, isn't he? Verse 2, he says, I, I had to feed you with milk. Oh, my goodness. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. Shots fired. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. Again, why? What, in what way? What, what, what was the measurement that shows, what was Paul referring to when he said they were controlled by their sinful nature? Was it, what, what check mark of do's and don'ts were they not following for Paul to say they were controlled by their sinful nature? He explains. Verse 
for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. This is how Paul defines the fact that they were sinful and controlled by it. He says you're fighting and bickering with each other about who's this and who did that and who got this and you're jealous of this person. They got the position and I didn't. Who do they think they are? And, and, and I don't like them and I want my way. And I'm going to fight for my way and I'm going to get the church to do this the way I want it to be done and I want to get... It's all the bickering and quarreling and the jealousy and Paul says, puke. That's the, that's the church at Corinth. That's a lot of churches today I've seen, sadly. Like, what in the world is church about? To come together and just bicker? The churches do that. They like fight over, they want to form committees, and my, my agenda is more important than your agenda, and all sorts of weird stuff. My program is more important than your program. My, I don't like that person. Can you believe so and so? Their kids, this, their kids, that. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Who needs that? And Paul's like, stop it. You're being, you're being sinful. You're jealous, you're quarreling with each other. And then he says this, doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Then he adds this. He says, aren't you living like people of the world? Again, being worldly, according to Paul, was not some arbitrary list of, you know, cultural biases. Living like the world is a bunch of people sitting in a church house arguing and being jealous and quarreling with each other and being divided with each other over their differences, instead of what Jesus prayed for, which is that we would be united together in order to make our message convincing for the world to believe. So from now on, whenever you hear people, don't be worldly, think about the context of Scripture. That's the fight, that's the bickering. Because, here's why. Why would anyone in the world want what we have as believers when what we have is no different than what they already have? It's like, why don't you come in and be a part of the God crowd? Find God. Oh, I need God in my life? Yeah. Do you have God in your life? Yeah. Come to our gathering. They're like, well, let's see here. What are you like? They come and they, or they hear about that we have gossip. Like, why do I need to come in, into, into, a, into a community of faith for gossip? I got plenty of gossip in my life already without faith. We're gossiping at work. We're gossiping at, you know, we're gossiping at um, the house. We're gossiping about our neighborhood. Well, I want to come to church and have more, another lane for more gossip in my life. Grudges? I got grudges in my family already. I got grudges amongst my, my, my neighbors. Why well, do I need to come to add faith community to my life and have more grudges? Who needs that? Why would I want to come and find spite? I got plenty of spite already without faith. Thank you very much. Politicking? Who wants to go to find people politicking? I got politicking in our subdivision committee. <laughs> politicking at my job. Why don't I come to church and find people doing the same thing for each other and their agenda's there? I got that already in my life. No thank you. Go to church, get in faith, to find more disdain. I got plenty of disdain already. Unkindness, unforgiveness. I already have problems forgiving people and people won't forgive me. I got plenty of unforgiveness and unkindness. Why go to a community of faith and focus on God to find more unkindness and unforgiveness? I already have all those things in my life without that. Thank you very much. Do you see what I'm saying? This is why Jesus said, help the people who, who, who believe on me to love each other the way that I've loved them. 
even though they're difficult, I've loved them because I want them despite their differences. Help them to love each other and, and be unified so the world will believe. And Paul's like, guys, I can't even talk to you spiritual. I gotta be like, stop quarreling and bickering and fighting and being jealous because the world doesn't need what you have. You're acting like the world. They already have plenty of drama. It's supposed to be something better in us. It's supposed to be something more loving and forgiving and gentle and kind and, and gracious and decent about us. Right? He's pulling no punches. Seriously, what, what is our attractiveness to anybody who doesn't know the Lord? Our rules? Like, man, I can go to church and find a bunch of people. Now I can't drink, can't smoke, can't chew, can't date the girls that do. And still have grudges, bitterness, unforgiveness, spite and politicking too. Woo! I mean, what possible draw? Not that you can't... I'm making a funny list there. The point is, is, whatever you think, you know, why would you want to add church and all of its expectations to your life along with all the same worldly drama that you have without it? And so Paul said, stop it. He said, yeah, but Harlan, if people were just more in my image, you know, <laughs> we could get along easier. Please hear me right now. Unity does not mean uniformity. Doesn't mean we clone ourselves. We're trying. I've got the clone wars going on in church, right? We're trying to clone everybody here. Um, unity does not mean uniformity. Like everyone's got to dress the way I think they should dress and, and act the way and like what I like and listen to what I listen to and raise their kids the way I raise my kids. They're just different than me. I can't do this. Who cares? That person talks more than I talk. They talk less than I talk. They have opinions that are different than mine. Who cares? Unity does not mean uniformity. You're unique, just like everybody else. What unity means is we can celebrate our common ground. Our common ground is Jesus. That's the common ground. That's the big picture, is we have Christ in common. Our faith in God, our need of a Savior in common. And then Instead of focusing on the lesser issues and making them big deals, we make Jesus the big deal, and on the lesser stuff, we celebrate our differences. We celebrate what brings us together, and we enjoy our uniqueness because we are all unique. And I know how tricky this is because sometimes we're, we struggle with people who are different than us. So here's what I mean by that. Some of us, we, you know, we, we don't talk. I mean, church is easy to come to. You can come to church and sit in rows like going to a movie theater. You come for the show, stare at the stage, go home and do nothing with anybody else, right? But to actually get into a small group or to get into coffee on a Tuesday evening with somebody in the church, all that stuff, that's relationship. And it's easier to just get into rows and leave the building, but sometimes we're like, Arlen, I try to get around people sometimes, people of faith, but I don't agree with them on everything. Who cares? Yeah, but that irritates me. I'm irritated by how their kids behave. I'm irritated by how their personality is. I'm irritated. I'm always like, why are we so irritated with everybody? I think a better approach to me is, is to be amused. <laughs> it's like when I go to Walmart, I like to go to Walmart just to, just to people watch. You ever go to Walmart just to people watch? You're like, man, these people are amazing. Look at the people that come in this place. You know, that, that, that maybe that's a little too cynical. But I'm saying, instead of being irritated by people who are different than you, be entertained by it. Be intrigued by it. Like, you ever see that old, that old picture of Michael Jackson eating the popcorn, you know? Like, he's, like, in the comment section of something dramatic, you know? That's how you ought to be. Like, instead of going to the church and saying, I get into a group, but people are different than me, and that will irritate me. Don't be irritated. Get into the group. Get a bowl of popcorn and just smile and say, boy, you're different than me. I'm intrigued by this. This is fascinating. 
We're not the same. How is it that you and I are so, I mean, my upbringing is different than your upbringing. That's interesting. My personality is different than yours. My worldview is a little different than yours. Cool. I'm fascinated by that. I want to learn more. I love to celebrate the variety. Unity does not mean uniformity. Paul tries to explain this in the same letter in Corinthians in chapter 12. You want to take some homework home, read chapter 12. Paul tries to make this point I'm trying to make himself. We'll pick up the story partway through the chapter in verse number 12. Paul says this, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. Like, Paul, that is the most basic biology lesson I've ever heard. Like, I know that we're not all feet, although I felt like I was when I was a young teenager, you know, going through, you know, young teenage boy changes, like I was all clumsy feet. But we're not all feet. We have hands and elbows and, and, and knees and torsos and you know, eyes. I mean, the human body has many parts that are different from each other. But the parts make up one whole body. You're like, okay, Paul, very cool and basic and unnecessary. Biology lesson there, cool beans. But he wasn't done yet. He says, so it is with the body of Christ. He's saying the body of Christ is no different than the human body. In other words, we have a bunch of different parts. And this refers to both the universal church as well as the local church. So as far as the universal church goes, for example, there are churches all over the place that do church differently than we do. They have different focuses, different personalities, different strengths, different things they bring to the community, different, different focal points. And, and, and that's fine because it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people. Some people are attracted to one that aren't attracted to another. We all have different draws. That's why no church should ever be critical of a different church. That's why when people ask me about some other church's problems, I'm like, I don't know. I got enough to say grace over at 13419 Parish Avenue to not worry about them. Because the truth is we're all different and God can deal with what's wrong without me having to get in someone else's drama. And if they're just different than me, that's okay. We should celebrate our differences as different churches because we have one thing in common, that is Jesus Christ. That would solve a lot of drama right there, wouldn't it? A lot of people go learn that lesson. We could get a lot, a lot more, can you believe what that one denomination does? Who cares? Who cares? That other church, da, 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 who cares? We're all unique. We all serve a different, we all reach different people. But it also applies to an individual local church. In the local church, we're different. We we do our family differently. We handle our kids differently. We might vote differently, probably do, right? We, we talk differently. Some talk more than others. Some of us, we have different styles, different personalities. And, and, and it's like a body. We all make up the same body. Paul's going to use this body illustration to make his point about the church. Verse 14, he says this. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part, if the foot says, I am not part of a bo the body because I am not a hand. Like, does that make it any, that does not make it any less a part of the body. Like, I'm just a foot. I can't grip nothing, man. I'm just a floor gripper. It's all I grip, you know. I got nothing going on. So what? You're as much a part of the body as the hand is. And if the ear says, I am not a part of the body. All my, all my, all my texts here sound like Igor from, from Winnie the Pooh here, you know? That's how they all sound. If the ear says, I am not part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? Like, man, I can't see nothing over here, you know? It's like, yeah, but that's not your point. 
No, of course not. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Man, I didn't hear that coming. Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying within your local context, globally and locally as a church, is as believers. He's saying your uniqueness, listen, your uniqueness does not make you less valuable than others. Your uniqueness does not make you less valuable. Like, oh, I, just not a, I don't have the same giftings and the same, I'm just whatever. No. Your uniqueness does not make you less valuable than others. But listen, your uniqueness does not make you more valuable than others either. Right? Or they word it a different way. Other people's uniqueness doesn't make them less valuable than you or more valuable than you. Just different. Like our body's full of different parts. He goes on in verse 18. He says, but our bodies have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. I had a funny dad joke here I was gonna tell, but for sake of time, I'm gonna ask me afterwards. How strange would a body be if it had only one part? Like, really, we have different parts to our body. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. Can you imagine that? The eye's like, silly hand, you can't see nothing. I don't need you. Ooh, that cookie looks good. The hand's like, well, you don't need me. Hey, wait a minute, you know. Or he says this, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you, silly feet. Now take me somewhere. I thought you don't need me, you know? I mean, it's silly, isn't it? And yet exactly this happens in our relationships with other people. We sit around and act like sometimes people are better than us or worse than us, or we're better than others or we're worse than others because we're different. And I'm saying that all of us bring something to the table, something that somebody else will connect with that they won't connect with the next person. We make ourselves whole by our differences, and so we should not be irritated. Because unity, unity does not mean uniformity. In fact, it goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, he says, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. Isn't that true with your body? Like, if you ever stub your toe, maybe you did this recently, stub your toe, you're not like, oh, that's okay, my elbow feels great. Like, no one's saying that, Right? You know, the, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad, okay? Give me a back rub, and I'm not going to be like, yeah, but my, 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 my kneecap, you know? No, I mean, that feels good. So it, it, we're, it's a body, and we should function together, and we should be rejoicing with each other and weeping with each other and supporting each other. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. All of you together are Christ's body. And each of you, each one of us, is a part of it. So I said again, unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't. We're not robots. We're not clones. Unity, unity means singing God's hand in our differences and valuing others because of it. And that's why I say, instead of being irritated by people who are different than you and saying, I don't want to get in community because people are just different than me. Man, just start changing. I think it's a mind shift change. Just start to get intrigued instead of irritated. I think this is what keeps us from becoming crotchety old people. And there's a lot of crotchety young people is what I'm trying to say. We're, we're just already on a path that's going to set our tone for our life at being crotchety. Because we're just like, people bother me. Why? Because they're not like me. Cool. Aren't you glad we're not robots? Why can't we just shift a mindset and say, I like that. I'm fascinated by that. 
bring all the weirdness you bring to the table because, man, that's like, that variety is literally the spice of life. Why are we bothered when we share Christ as our unifying umbrella? Why are we upset where we're different? Unity does not mean uniformity. So how do we say, okay, Arlen, that's nice philosophy, but let's get practical here for a minute. How do we actually do this in real life? That's like a philosophy, but give me some practical advice. Well, it's impossible if you never see people who are different than you. And it's why, it's why church is important to come together. But again, we're in rows. It's why it's also important to find other ways to get connected to each other, to get out of rows and into circles, to get into groups, to, to, to find friends, to have coffee with somebody on a Tuesday night at SIP or at Glorious or at you know, someplace like that, or have a meal together with other people. It's why serving in a serving team is so important. There's so many chances to do things. Now, I want to take a moment here and quickly plug something. We have a lot of life groups at our church. We've sometimes had very few. We've gotten some going since COVID again. We have several life groups going on. Um, we, you know, we have uh, Ben and Bethany have had one for a while for youngish adults, people their age and younger, basically, I guess. Um, uh, they, we have a ladies group with Joyce Huffnagel leads um, uh, twice on Wednesdays. And I'm going to make a Facebook post, by the way. Follow our Facebook page. Follow our In The Loop group. I'm going to post about all the groups in our church this week on Facebook. Nathan, remind me to make sure we get that done. We'll post about all of our groups this week so you can see them all. But I want to mention one new group that's starting that some of you might want to get involved in if you're not in a group already. And that is a group. So back here in the back is Ron and Sharon Porter. Ron has been a part of uh, church leadership for a long time. He's been an elder at Bethel Church. Um, he's been involved in overseas uh, leadership development in churches in Africa and other places. He's been involved in establishing group cultures within churches. So he's got a lot of experience in the church world, a lot of experience with this. And he, uh, he's been coming here for a while. And I wanted him to start a group sometime to bring his experience and to have a group in our church. Around the same time, I'm doing the sermon series, and there's a lady in our first service. You don't know her if you don't come to the first service, but her name is Cleta, Cleta Serrano. She's just back where Dolores is right now. And Cleta is, um, said to me one Sunday on the way out, she said, it'd be great to start a small group where we can talk about some of these eclipsing, challenging conversations. I said, that's a great idea. So she goes home, finds a book called Challenging Conversations, and sends it to me and says, we should do a group around this. And so I connected her and Ron, because Ron was trying to start. And Ron said, that's a great idea. So I got a, a thread going with the two of them and said, let's get a group going that can discuss the challenging conversations. There's lots of challenging conversations out there. And talk about, you know, just honest, I mean, who care? believe what you believe. Let's just talk about it. It's all safe. It's a safe place to have whatever you got going on in your mind, whatever differences, it doesn't matter. Just talk about the stuff that's hard, about life and about faith. And so without getting into it all for sake of time, uh, there's a paperwork about the kind of the, the format for the group, and it's on the table back here. There's also a sign-up sheet. The group is going to start on April the 7th on a Thursday night at 6.30 p.m. in the room that you guys use, the, the, the teen room over here that you use on Wednesdays, I believe. This room back here um, on Thursday nights at 6.30 p.m., about an hour, hour and a half long, and it's going to discuss this material. So grab one of these papers on the way out, sign up if you want to sign up, and, and get a part of this group. It would be a great group to join in on. If you're online and you want to join one of our groups, 
let us know in the comments section. If you're here, sign up back there or turn in a connection card at the very least. Now I'll mention Joyce's and Ben's and Ron's all on Facebook this week as well, but I want to point out the new group to you today. Here's the point. Get in a group. Get out of rows. Get into circles because you'll get to know people who are different than you. And I know, guys especially, maybe, guys, maybe girls are better. I'm not a girl. I can't relate to girls. But as a guy, I know that sometimes guys are like, I don't want to go because I don't want to talk. Well, like Ron was saying earlier, if you go to a group, you don't have to speak. You can be quiet. You're invited to, but no one's going to put you in a box. But here's the thing. Sometimes we're like, yeah, but I'll be silent, but I don't like those jabber mouths, or I don't like those other people who are weird. Stop being irritated by people who are different than you and be intrigued by them. This is what keeps us grounded. So whether you get into a growth group or whether you get into a serving opportunity, our nursery can use more helpers, our kids program can use more helpers, our worship team is always looking for talent, our blood drive can use volunteers this week to help us at blood drive, our, our uh, uh, food pantry could always use help. Uh, just jump in or, or grab coffee on a Thursday night with somebody or uh, uh, have dinner with friends. Do some life together and let's celebrate and enjoy our uniqueness. It takes being around people and leaning into our differences. So I can say it this way. It's all about getting around, getting around each, get around each other, and then get along. You can't do it if you're not getting around. So get around first, and then when you get there and you discover you're different, cool. Get along. Enjoy it. Now, i got to wrap this show up because it's getting late, so I'm going to wrap it up by saying this. Even on a Sunday morning when there's not a group going on, or there's not coffee on a Tuesday night because it's Sunday morning church. You can practice this a little bit every Sunday morning. We've taught you this through the last few years from time to time with an acronym that we call GIFT, G-I-F-T. It's an acronym, and it gives you four ways that on Sunday mornings you can quickly connect with other people. You got to take a picture of this or a screenshot if you're online. Write this down. This will help us connect with each other. Every one of us should do one of these four things every single week. Here's, the, here's what they are again. G stands for greet someone you've never met before. That might mean you've never met them before at all, or it might mean that you've met them, but you forgot their name. But it's okay to go to somebody and say, hey, I'm kind of a dork and I forgot your name. Can you remind me again? It's my fault. It's not, it's not you, it's me. You know? Just say, ask them, re-meet them. You could have been going to the church for a year with somebody and never talked to them before. So, so it's not necessarily a first-time visitor it could be a longtime member that you've not met before or you've forgotten. Greet someone you've never met before. I stands for introduce people to each other. I love to do this. I like to talk to somebody and say, hey, have you met so-and-so? And make a connection between other people. Connect people. So-and-so is my friend and da-da-da and so-and-so is this and that. Introduce people to each other. F stands for follow up with someone you've met recently. That means when you've talked to somebody, go back to them and say, hey, a couple weeks ago you said you were having a procedure done. How did that go? Or, hey, you were going on vacation. How was your trip? Do you have pictures? How are your kids? I remember what we talked about. What this point does is it says to somebody, what you told me was important enough for me to remember and bring it back up to you. So follow up with someone you've met recently. And then T stands for thank someone who did something you appreciate. Thanks for singing in the worship team. Thanks for watching the kids. Thanks for changing, for wiping poopy butts. And um, working with the kids or greeting people at the front doors. Or just being an awesome person in the room with a great energy during worship. You know? Just thank someone. And if all of us would do one of those four things and make, I mean, take that seriously every week, we would help build relationships with each other. In this way will be effective as we reflect God's love and light. Because as we wrap up our series next week on Eclipsed, here's the thing. 
Why would anyone who needs to see God's love, God's light, God's truth, and God's good news be able to see that love of God if they look at a church who can't even get along with each other? Churches that are dysfunctional are blocking the light of God. We can't afford to do that, can we? We have nothing better to offer anybody if we're no different. And Jesus told us to love each other the way that he loved us, to be one so that the world would believe. Let's model what unconditional love and unity looks like. Not uniformity, but be unified, not uniform. And let's not eclipse the idea that God is amazing. He brings change in our lives, that he loves us, and we can love him back. We can love each other back. We'll wrap up the whole series next week. Today was kind of easy, I think, in some ways. We, we get along here just fine, so that's easy for us. Next week, we're going to go out with a bang. Get ready for it, okay? Just warning you that now. Uh, but anyhow, we'll wrap it up next week. But for the meantime, let's be a church of people who are the moon, reflecting God's love for us into the world around us. We can do that by his grace.